0: Rollin, rollin. Hello, welcome to going off track. Hello, I'm welcome Joe. to my house.
1: Yes, <laughs> we're at Brad's place. Me, Brad is. And is Stephen on Skype? Can we hear him? Stephen.
0: Hey. Guys, what's hey.
1: On? <coughs> yes. It's been a while since we. I've seen Stephen.
0: <coughs> oh, the kids. The kids are doing something. i got gonna go. <coughs>
1: <laughs> um, but, uh, it's been a while since I've seen Benny also, uh, but you can check out Benny's band, the Gaslight Anthem this summer at the Governor's Ball. Oh yeah. So I hear. Yes. Uh, they will be playing the 59 sound in its entirety. Will you be there? I don't know. I've been to Governor's Ball a couple of times. We shot some sound advice stuff there one summer and then I think I went for fun one year. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not really, th- that's a good festival.
0: I was going to say as festivals as go. As festivals
1: go. But it's still a festival. Yeah, yeah. So I would say I would really like to see Gaslight. I would also really prefer to see them at a club versus outdoor. But I feel like it's one of those things if I had nothing going on and I was in town and like someone offered me a ticket, day of, maybe (laughs) I would go. You know?
0: Yeah, I know.
1: (laughs) I went one year and backstage I had uh, cupcakes and oysters and open bar. And it was really hot, and I ate so many oysters, a lot of cupcakes, drank a lot, and felt disgusting.
0: Yeah, but that's kind of weird.
1: It was a weird combo, especially for someone, like, after a couple of drinks, and you're, like, self-control is waning, and then you're just like, oh, I have a couple more oysters, and then, like, i like, oh, these cupcakes look good, and it's just, <laughs> it all starts to, and you're sweaty.
0: Oh, that does sound kind of gross. Yeah, though.
1: it was kind of, I really should have, like, moderated better. That This was maybe, like, four This was, like, the VIP ago.
0: section. They would put out snacks.
1: Yeah, they actually had, like, a tent where there was just people all day just, like, shucking oysters and putting them out. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those are the days. I actually, someone, someone, I didn't even have credentials for this, but I knew someone who did, and they were leaving, and they, like, gave me the ah. wristband or something.
0: He <laughs> totally leached oysters yeah. in the sun. Yeah. Uh memories of. Yeah, I I don't think I mean the past couple of festivals that I went to are probably Warp Tours and like I mean I never left the backstage. I yeah, don't think. Yeah, it's, it's tough, it's kind of lame, but you know, so's Warp Tour. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, sorry, did I say that? <laughs> warp uh, Tour is very exciting if you're 16 years old. It is. It is. It oh, was. It's very highlight of exciting my if you're 27 up. years old.
1: Yeah. I worked on it from the time I was 22 to about 25, 26. It's
0: very exciting. Yeah, no, I should, I'm not, I'm not dissing Warped. I, I love it. Uh, we should say where we did this. because. Oh yes, uh, good idea. Not all our podcasts are here, but Pulse Music, uh, very generous in letting us record the show there. Steven Grawalski, who's an amazing producer engineer and usually does all the shows with us, uh, wasn't there this time, unfortunately, Steven, sorry. But uh, he's the guy to look up, so check out Pulse if you need, what, recording? Anyways, uh, today
1: on the podcast,
0: we have someone speaking who- Speaking
1: of oysters. Well, someone who's <laughs> speaking of someone who has a a, a connection to the punk world, right. the early, early 80s punk world. Uh-huh. Uh, today on the podcast, we have host of Bar Rescue, John Taffer, who recently wrote a book called Don't Bullshit Yourself, Crush the Excuses That Are Holding You Back. <laughs> His first book is called Raise a Bar. Um, I, uh, I got obsessed with the show Bar Rescue when it came out. I was living in Greenpoint. Um, my, me and my roommate Emily used to constantly watch his show and from pretty early on and i don't know what it was about it i was watching a lot of weird reality tv at yeah time. you
0: also are a big fan of the fucking storage wars storage wars i was watching but, but, but
1: yeah well, that, that shows <laughs> that, that storage <laughs> wars show is is the fakest thing ever I mean, this God, is a whole other thing so where they're much. like oh we planted this like 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 civil war artifact right. with all these like old like beach chairs <laughs> and like let's go to the act like But anyways, uh, yeah, Bar Rescue. I I don't know what I liked. I liked, I mean, I think like, there was a lot of confrontation, but it was also sort of like positive, and I liked sort of seeing I don't know, I I always thought the bar industry was kind of interesting, but I don't really know a lot about it, other than like hanging out at bars or being friends. It is interesting. So, um, so the show's doing well. I mean, like, it's, I don't know how many seasons it is. I could probably look that up. Probably like seven seasons or something. It's a very popular show. I know it just moved to the Paramount Network, um, and I know uh John was in town here doing some kind of business seminars. I think he is a big fan. But yeah, I interviewed him originally last year for Noisy because uh I heard a podcast with him or I read somewhere that he had booked um Oh my god, how am I blanking on this? He booked the Troubadour. Right. Uh, in the 80s and he booked shows for Black Flag and uh what do we talk about? Like um We get
0: into that. We should I told him at the end we should get him back and just do podcast on, on that so.
1: yeah i mean we talked about that a lot in my noise article and i feel like we went learned some more and reiterated that but yeah he i mean he booked black flag dead Kennedys, all of these kind of classic kind of 80s ba- 80s punk bands that i never saw um at the troubadour and sort of the way they you know them and like the new wave scene and adamant and all these scenes kind of clashed and then uh yeah so we talked a lot about that and then just you know kind of bar etiquette and just John gave me some sort of self-help at one point. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's, he's a super, like, uh, he's he plays drums. He's an intense guy, but he's very, uh, definitely has like a keen sense of business and like has, uh, has a real focus and really knows what he's trying to accomplish. And he's accomplished a lot. And I feel like, you know, like at one point I'm going to let this go in a second, but you know, at one point he says that, uh, you know, he pitched his show and people were like, you're too old. You're not attractive enough to be on TV. And now he's got this best-selling show. And I think, like, you know, there's different things you can take away from this interview. Um, And, you know, I think some of our listeners might not agree with every single thing that maybe he says. But I do think, like, that idea of sort of, uh, you know, just kind of following your dream and not listening to other people and kind of, like, coming on the other side is inspiring no matter what your dream is.
0: Yeah. There's some tools in this. Whether, you know, they're definitely driven home (laughs) pretty clearly. But yeah, man, there's some stuff here. There's some stuff here. So I was saying to Joan earlier, we do a podcast like this about once a year with a guest that's just kind of outside of our normal yes. yeah. framework. Not
1: a typical But it's great. It's yeah. good exercise yeah. for us. Yes. Not a typical not our typical guest, but uh, we want to thank John a lot for coming by. Uh, yeah. check out his new book, check out Bar Rescue, and here is going off track with the infamous John Taffer. What's <laughs> going on?
2: 1979 buddy miles got in drug trouble and sold me a jimmy hendrix guitar for $3,500 and uh, with a letter of authenticity and, <laughs> and and then when hendrix died he got 28 of them from the estate and everything and i still have that sucker oh, man, and really it's sitting home it. and i still have it yeah and, and it wasn't a if you know anything about hendrix it wasn't a stratocaster Wait, it, it, was it was it was a Hagstrom how about it oh hagstrom
3: sweet it, looked
2: it, yes, it <laughs> looked it looked like sort of a Gibson 335 with like a yeah. fender head on it but it was, it was uh, uh, yeah and and he used that guitar supposedly in, in the song uh uh Red House really Whoa. supposedly were
3: you, were you just uh were you a collector or you liked to play guitar too no i just was well, I played guitar and yeah, know, i've been a musician but, but yeah. uh, uh, no i just it was just an opportunity well we know you're a drummer and uh i was super excited to find that out when i was doing research Benny's for this interview. Also i'm also a drummer gotcha and uh
2: so you're you're
3: a nutcase then in essence you are telling me. of course we that's what i'm are. saying we have this understanding that but <laughs> i'd like to say a study came out the it good ones are nutcases <laughs> i played with some great very nice yeah. guys who are drummers so uh <laughs> it was in i believe the independent from the uk last year and it was a study about the uh essentially the cognitive capacity of a drummer as opposed to other musicians, and it was much higher. No. Well, yeah, and, and I can understand well, it. because there's a there's... depth of coordination. It's exactly. like the dog who
2: uses his paws more than just his mouth.
3: Yeah, You got uh, four limbs really? going, you're counting. I feel like in a live setting, you know, who can mess up, you know, less than a drummer? You know, the drummer and the singer oh, yeah. no, the pressure are essentially song. the only ones people are going to notice unless someone's terrible. And, uh, the singer can mess up, though. He can't. He yeah, can well, change He can the be like, oh, I was just riffing. Yeah, yeah. drummer, drummer is going to oh, a no, lot you use that beat. That Everybody's going to turn around Yeah, they're like, oh,
0: where's like- the one? Yeah,
1: yeah, and John, we talked about you sometimes play along to Metallica songs when you're. (laughs) What do you have like a go to, a go to song to like let off some steam? (laughs) Uh,
2: It depends upon my frame of mind. Sometimes I'll do something like a Metallica ballad might be fun. Okay, but I've got to tell you guys. I mean, I I play, I travel all the time, Uh so I can't keep up with Lars for more than like two minutes (laughs) in a traditional (laughs) Metallica song. I, I know what to do. I just run out of steam. Right, right. But so, so I'll play some of the ballads and stuff. But you know. Play some
0: uh, classic rock, and the ballads and, uh, are harder to play than fast songs, right? Yeah, uh, well, certain ones like uh,
2: uh, what is it? It doesn't matter. Yeah. There are certain Metallica tunes that, that are easier, but you still got to
3: hit hard. Yeah, yeah. And know. he's got the oddly placed symbols that he'll just put, yeah, in bizarre timings <laughs> on those slow songs. You don't know, even you know why you're there. What kind of a kit
2: do you have set up at home? I have a Roland uh, V-Drum set, oh, which nice. is a professional electronic studio set, yeah, yeah. but it has real heads on it. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, those are really And, and it's sweet. really neat. But I got to tell you, I've been playing that for maybe 12 years, and when I shot the promo for the network a few weeks ago, which you guys might see with me we playing just, the yeah, drums, that was the first time I sat behind a real set, not an electronic set, yeah, yeah. in a long time. And I got to tell you, as real as I thought the V-Drum pads are, they're not, man. Right, Because right. I got to tell you, the reaction I was getting off those sticks, they almost flew to the other side right. of the room. Bouncy. So it was a whole different deal. Yeah. Sure, sure. And so I was actually pretty proud of myself. I pulled it off. And you're
0: a lefty. <laughs> I'm a lefty. Yeah, not easy. So you Um, uh, drive the sound man crazy. Well, I mean, but I
3: used to play righty sets all the time. I just swing the high hat around, around. you know, and do that. Because I know, I know, you know, you came up, you were playing in L.A. like in the 70s. I was. And in those days, are you having to bring like use house kits? at at Well, actually,
2: when when I was playing in L.A., I had bought myself a premiere set. Mm hmm. And when I bought it, it was a really beautiful blue premiere set. But I didn't realize when I bought it that the heads were metric. Oh, shit. So I bought this amazingly <laughs> beautiful drum set, and then I couldn't could buy head heads head for it. So they had to oh order it for me. And in those days, it took like three freaking sure. weeks to get them. Yeah. So it was a beautiful set. But Keith Moon played it, so I, I had to have, I had one to have then, it. You
0: know? Is that still a thing?
3: I never, I've, heard, of I've never heard of it. No, they must I, don't don't think so I, guess, I guess they did, but
2: back then it was an issue, and you couldn't. It, it didn't what fit. A nightmare. <laughs> but I did, I
3: did, I did for a friend. He had given me an old snare that was his uncle's, like an old Gretsch marching snare from I think it's a, a 50s, and uh, it was in pretty bad shape. So it was meant to be for Christmas, but I actually just got finished. But I just had it uh, redone for him, and he said that one of the things they did for me was they recut the edge in a way. That the new heads heads. would get on it, because Uh, you would never be able to get a new head on it. So they put a spacer on it or something around Yeah, I think they just did a cut on it that that gave it that extra, you know, whatever, smudge of an inch that that you needed to to put a standard head.
1: To make it an inch. And John, last time you were here, we were talking for Vice about uh, booking the Troubadour, booking shows for Black Flag. Yeah. Um, did you get any kind of reaction from that article? I mean, did people, cause I, I did. people you know. People know.
2: were really surprised. As a matter of fact, we do this thing, or we used to do this thing called Fan Art Friday. And somebody, you know, gave me a shaved head, mohegan down my head, you know, spiked me out. And so a number of people sort of dressed me and had, you know, a uh, uh, fun with a, a fan art. And I got a lot of comments from it because that's a side of me that often I don't talk about. Sure, yeah. But, you know, that that was an important part of, I, mean, I wasn't a huge punk music fan. Right. But I, ra- I ran a, you know, Trooper at the time. But, yeah. And, and this- you know, it was interesting in that era, though, you'd have Black Flag, Adamant, Fear, all those bands. But at the same time, you had the Knack in their collarless right, jackets. Right, 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 You right. know, and you had like the Rubber City Rebels and all the clean cut, you know, which we called alternative back then. Right, right. Which well, wasn't kinda- very alternative at all. Right, poppy, But it was interesting because those things were coexisting. Huh, right. You know, so like, you know, the, the, the hard like rock guy guard? with the long
3: hair was yeah, gone. Yeah. it was clean and cut, or punk. And it wasn't much in the middle. Was that like old guard meets new guard, or they were just kind of existing at the well, same Well, they were sort time? of both coming up at the same time. Right. Huh. But, you know, I remember the dead Kennedy's Cadillac and stuff.
2: Right. Yeah. Cool. I remember actually seeing that car in such a nice really, day. and and, and I, we would pull all the tables in the Troubadour, and they would pogo down on the floor. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it was quite a scene, man.
3: Nothing like that today. And did I read Sweet. that you you were uh, witness? for a um, kind of adamant black flag like beef? There well, was an they, old beef. They, yes, almost like some
2: of the hip-hop beefs that happened today. Those guys did not freaking like each other. Do you other. know what it was based from? Or? I don't know what it was based on, but it, I know this, that if we favored one or the other, the other one was really pissed at us. Uh. So, you know, you had to be sort of even-handed. Then, I'll never forget this, there was a a... Uh, I think it was Adamant who's playing, but I'm not sure. And you know, the Menage Pit was going on, and, and some guy was swinging a chain. <laughs> so we got security in there, and, and somehow somebody got stabbed or injured hey. with, with a knife. I don't know if it was stabbed or injured. And uh, somehow they thought it was my security who did it. So the band and I, I think it was uh, it was Adamant had a quote hit out on me. Oh. I'll never forget it. So everybody said, listen, you got, you got to meet and talk with them, John. I mean, they're really pissed. And, you know, so so we actually had a meeting in the Troubadour. Whoa. With this, like, come to peace type right. of, uh, of a summit, if you will. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, to, to, to uh, uh, create peace again. But there was some uh, pressure back in those days uh. between these bands, you know. I Which wonder... was amazing because they were all typically
3: suburban kids from the Valley or right. whatever,
2: sure. Marin County. So they weren't exactly the grudge
3: tough... you know. Yeah, the, the, now it would probably get hashed out on Twitter, yeah. right? No summits. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah. Now it would
2: get shot down real
3: quick. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, we
1: yeah. talked about last time, too, that episode of Bar Rescue, where uh, John brings on uh, Joe Escalante from the Vandals yeah. to oh, a right. punk bar in Long Beach, and the guy doesn't oh, yeah. know who he is. It's
2: oh like, yeah, come on. I can say oh. the F word, can I? Yeah, right. of course. So, so <laughs> I bring I, I, yes, I bring Joe to this punk rock guy. All he would run is a punk club. He is a punk lifestyle guy. So I bring Joe. He looks at me and goes... Who the fuck is he? <laughs> 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 Amazing like that. You know, in Bar Rescue, they walk themselves off a cliff so often. Yeah. You know, all I got to do is just go.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you just sometimes, you know, that was something when I was, so a, a typical episode of Bar Rescue I read takes five days, right? Yeah. Now we're From, down about four. Down about four. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in a normal context, like say you took the show away. And you were actually hired as an outside consultant to come into a place. Like, what would be your ideal set of time that you, you would yeah, actually that's a great question, like buddy. to spend there? That's a great
2: question. You know, typically, you know, I would go in, I would do demographic research for a couple of weeks. Right. Once I'm done with that, then I would come to the marketplace. I would typically come to the market on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday so I can see a midweek night and a weekend night. Okay. If it's a sports market, I might stay through Sunday to see what's going on on a sports sure. Sunday. Uh, then I will go back. I'll do what I call a competitive assessment, a demographic review, put together price points mm-hmm. and guidelines for the concept. Right? Is it value a college bar? Is it upscale bar? And determine the price positioning. Then we'll develop the concept. That takes about five weeks. So now I'm about seven, eight weeks in. Yeah. Wow. Now I give you a document. The document says this is the concept. This is the budgets to build it. This is you know what you should do in revenue and everything. Now you can take that document and from that we can design it. Sure. So now I'm eight, nine weeks into it. Now we're going to start design. Design typically runs 30 days. And, you know, you have the chance to pick this and pick that. You can't get that stool. as you do I mean, you go through the process of elimination, selection, and matching. So, you know, that takes a month. And then it will typically take anywhere from three to five weeks to build it. So we're talking about roughly three to four months. And I'm given four days. That's why I'm such a raving fucking maniac. (laughs) Because there's this clock (laughs) ticking in my head all the time. And if I don't accomplish what I need to each day... You know, come day four, I'm fucked. You know, right. and, and remember when I got there, and this is the heavy part of Bar Rescue for me, mm-hmm. when I get there, these people look in my eyes and, and you know, they're they have enough money for three weeks, four weeks, five weeks. You hear them say that. You know, their houses are on the line. Their cars are on the line. I'm their last chance. Mm-hmm. And when they look in my eyes and I look in my eyes, I get that. And they get that. So I know I'm their last chance. They know I know they're their last So this becomes really a serious commitment. Hmm. So the minute I start this, I've got to deliver for you now. It becomes very personal. I cannot leave you in a worse place or right. I cannot leave you to close. Sure. So I can't live with myself if I did that. You know, you're, right. you are counting on me. Yeah, yeah. So, so, no, I've got this pressure. So I can't wait for you to jump on the bus. I'm going to fucking put you there. You know, I can't wait for you to figure this out at your pace. It's got to happen at my fucking pace. Right. And, and it's really... You know, it's a pressure cooker for me. Yeah. So if I don't push and push and push and push, I don't make it. Hmm. So it really is in as much as is the time frame isn't natural. The way everybody's acting within it is <laughs> right and that's what makes bar rescue work is is completely in and I you know, I say this on my mother's grave there's not one script, there's not one actor, I've never been there before I've never met these people before. I get about a three minute briefing before I start, and then we do it three and, and minute briefing that's it. That's it, man. I show up on set. I sit in my makeup chair, right? And they make me look, you know, uh, 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 <laughs> better than I started. And, and I get producer comes in and I get literally, you know, I might be pushing it. 60, 90 seconds review. It's all I know. Jesus. I know. I know who your partner is. I know how long you've owned it. I know how far in debt you are. I know how much money you're losing a month. And I know what the general disposition is between you and your employees and you and your partners. That's it. I don't want to know anymore. Right, Because if I know anymore, I walk in with assumptions. I want to walk in and fish. Right, Because my producers, my field producers and such, are typically in their young 20s. You know, They don't know the questions to ask. Sure. They don't always get me the real story. They get me the surface story. Right. So I can't go in counting on the work that they did in advance. I'm going to go in on my own with a completely empty slate, no predeterminations, no judgments, and I'm going to go fishing. And right. I will find where the issue is. But then it becomes natural. Because right. I have to go through the process. You see me go through the process. And and also, people have to understand, I'm not doing this for television. Or it's not real to them. So I ignore the cameras. It causes them to ignore the cameras. And this is this is you and me right now. There's nobody else fucking here. Right. You know, when we're looking in each other's eyes, th- that's what it becomes. I take it really seriously.
1: Hmm. And sort of in your new book, Don't Bullshit Yourself, yeah. which just came out, you sort of talk about what it was like pitching the show and how it was kind of difficult at first. It was. What was that kind of process like?
2: You know, it was, was, I never thought, first of all, I'd ever be on television. This was never in a career objective or a goal. I never thought I'd be in the media space at all. I'm a hospitality guy. You know, my big goal was to own a bunch of resorts and stuff around the world, maybe a few casinos. I mean, that was my end game. But but, uh, uh, um, one day I was giving a speech at a nightclub and bar convention in Las Vegas and somebody came up to me and said, you should be on TV, man. So I I sat down, I wrote a concept, a page and a half, treatment they would now call it. I called it a concept because I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And and it was called uh, um, On the Rocks, right? Bar On the Rocks, On the Rocks. It works. Yeah, yeah. that plays. Jonah's uh, the
3: pun master if you need a pun card. Not a bad one. Very good. So (laughs) so it turns out they rejected
2: it because they they related it more to marriages than bars. Uh, Uh, Right, my marriage is On the Rocks. Oh, it's because of uh,
3: Arthur too. Yes, Arthur well, that too, to on the on rocks. rocks. It's, yeah, good point. what did it. <laughs> so, so, so I uh, uh, wrote film, this thing up.
2: <laughs> and years before, I had been partners with Paramount on a restaurant concept. And I went to a friend of mine who had run Paramount Television, had just left in the past few months. And I showed him my write-up, and I was real excited. And he looks at me and goes, John, you will never fucking be on television. Whoa. He's verbatim, John, you will never fucking be on television. You're too old. And you're not good looking enough.
0: <laughs> Goodness
2: gracious. So, uh, exactly right. Tough, so, so, tough so you know, so I walk out of the office thinking to myself, fuck him. I am going to get on television. Yeah. Oh. So That was the one thing that he had to say to me. So I, I went home. I worked on a write up a little more. I got a sound guy and a video guy. I went to a friend of mine's bar in uh, Hermosa Beach, California. Tell you a funny story. The bar was a Pittsburgh, uh, uh, a, a Pittsburgh Steelers a bar. Steelers
3: bar, Ooh. and it was
2: packed every Sunday the with terrible Steelers towels gang. all over. So I did a three-minute sizzle reel where I went into the bar on Saturday afternoon. It was completely empty. I screamed and yelled at the staff and the owner, sat down, decided to put a football promotion, and came back the next day when the place was fucking packed yeah, <laughs> for the Pittsburgh game. Yeah, yeah. And now it was full, and it was a three-minute sizzle reel. And, and uh, my the recon was a booby cam in my wife's shirt because we hadn't <laughs> developed it. So that was a three-minute wow. sizzle reel for Honor Rocks. I took the sizzle reel, and I sent it blind to five production companies uh, within... Three days, I had four offers. Huh, holy shit. Four offers. The <laughs> convention was going on in Florida at the time. And one of the companies, Three Ball, was sending me emails saying, don't do anything till we get back. We'll be back in three days. We'll be back. So, wow, I was pretty surprised. So now I get offers. I'm not in the entertainment business. Uh-huh. I have no idea what the fuck I'm reading. What yeah, is cycle? Yeah. What is back end? Sure, sure, you know, sure. I'm a business guy, but I don't know this stuff. So now I go to find an agent. Well, you really can't get an agent until you have a show, and you can't right. get a show until you but have you an agent. An I still haven't fucking figured that out, but in yeah. any event, I hire a manager who helps me negotiate through the contract, and uh, uh, I pick one, th- one of the companies, which was Three Ball Entertainment, signed with them, and I didn't realize it at the time, but they had already pre-sold the show, because when I signed with them, Spike picked up the show literally four days later. Huh. So, uh, <laughs> the series premiered in 11 months from when that friend of mine and says you will never fucking be on television.
3: That's a quick life pivot right there Holy from what, shit. from what
2: you were Which doing. is a really short cycle. Normally it'll take a years to get something on here.
0: So like was there that. any discussion about you being the the star of the show or Oh no, I was always the star of the show. You were. So they they accepted that from the get that was the, essentially the concept. Yeah, and then they thought I was obviously they thought I was good enough Yeah,
2: and, and you know yeah. when I had my 100th episode the network did a special video for me a personal video. And they talked about on the video how, you know, when I came in, you know, they thought that there was some talent there. So they decided to give me a series. But I'll never forget when I was sitting with the network executives, and I'm talking about bar science. And what the fuck is bar science? So I talked to them about the butt funnel. And which is the butt funnel is a small entry to a dance floor that causes people to rub up against each other, right? So you time it. You see a girl approaching the dance floor, right? It's an opening between the drink. rail. Well, you time it just yes. right. So you come in there now. When you approach oh, the butt funnel, one of two things happens. Either she will face you and you'll go in face-to-face, right, which you is go, the ideal scenario. You got go butt to go butt-to-butt. Or she'll go butt, and you can go front, butt-to-front, Right. Ah. Second most ideal situation. (laughs) And then a third is butt to butt, butt. which is really the number three of the three. So, 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 (laughs) you know, a lot of breakfasts have happened because of the butt funnel. (laughs) So so, uh, uh, they said, to well, how many more sciences can you have? And then I talked about, you know, a lot of them. But, you know, there's certain sciences like when the demographic is over 34 years old. We always put it back on a bar stool when it's under 34 years old we don't why well when women and men cross 34 years old we get a little sensitive about our asses sure so the back on the stool just makes everybody more comfortable and then i love this one there's you know elevated areas that you walk through in bars and nightclubs well if there's one staircase on an elevation it's what i call the idiot plan and here's why you see a really hot girl up on that elevation so you walk up the step to walk by her You hit a dead end. You got to turn the fuck around and go back the other way, and she knows exactly what you did. Oh, I see. If there's another staircase, you can walk through with a purpose and go right out (laughs) the other side. So, you know, these little things about bar sciences. So they thought we didn't have enough for more than one season. I'm starting my 160th episode next week. So we've we've done pretty good with it.
3: How much – I mean, it's pretty funny. And when you think about the impetus of what brings a person to a bar – And for a certain crowd, I guess, you know, sometimes you don't want to talk about it, but rudely you got to be like, oh, yeah, people are trying to go hook up. That's like the point. Social interaction. How how much of that (laughs) understanding, you know, it seems like you have to have like really sort of a, I mean, like you even said, you go into a city, you need to understand the demographic. You need to understand who would come to this bar and like And what their motivation is. And what the motivation, how much money, where these people work, like yep. all that. And then even something like that, you need to understand the, the the patterns of people and where they're going. Like how much to you just being um a little anthropological, being able to look around and see people is part of your work or understanding uh, all people? All of it. Do you think being a New Yorker helps with that? I think being a New Yorker
2: helps. I think being a musician helped. You know, I own the only patent ever issued by the federal government for music management to des- achieve a desired ambiance in a hospitality property. Wow. Whoa. So, so, wait a minute. You know, yeah, yeah. So, say
0: that slowly.
2: <laughs> I own the only patent ever issued by the federal government for the management of music to achieve a desired ambiance in a hospitality property. I'm a fucking nutcase, guys. I took 74,000 songs. Okay. Paid DJs to categorize them by key beats per minute instrumentation style, male or female vocalist, and era. Okay. Then using those five uh, uh, metrics, we would design grids. And then we put discs in color-coded folders that tied to eras. And I could take a 21-year-old... DJ and have them play in 60s music with beats per minute curves and energy cycles and everything just like music should be. Huh. So I understand the science of music far more than most people do from my days of writing the Troubadour and live sure. to going into nightclubs and recorded music formats. Wow. So, you know, I know you take 10 songs, you mix up, you order those songs. It's a completely different fucking experience. Yeah. So, you know, beats per minute curves and cycles. If I'm too high, too long, I burn you out, you go home. If I'm too low, too long, I bore you, you go home. So there's a cycle. There's a pattern of it. you know, there's music that, that, that uh, removes gangs from nightclubs uh, that you wouldn't even know we're doing. Uh, uh, Frank Sinatra? Uh, uh, no, no, no. You know, you can play <laughs> what, you're hip-hop. you going
3: to play Mac the Knife to a gang? <laughs> no, I'll tell you <laughs> Come something on, it's really interesting. I'll tell you something really interesting. Last if, call. If, if you have
2: gangs uh, <laughs> uh, in a nightclub environment, and this is, you know, pretty deep music science, sure. but if every third song, you can stay in your hip-hop format or whatever your normal format is, but if every third song you play is a female vocalist, they'll be gone in two
0: weeks. Huh. Really? Holy shit! Just why? Like, like
3: like, in your estimation, why do you think that is? Like an emasculation? Because of
2: motivation. Uh, And I'm going back to what you said: people are motivated, or stimulated, or chased away for very personal reasons. Music is a very—you don't go to a place that doesn't play music you like. If the music doesn't fit into your envelope of acceptability, or if the music doesn't make you feel cool or relevant for being there, you're fucking gone. Right. So, so, you know, what, what drives bars and nightclubs more than anything is relevancy.
3: Mm -hmm. If you
2: don't feel relevant by being there, if you don't feel you're in a relevant place, you're not going to come back. That makes sense. So if you're going to hang with buddies, you want to be relevant. If you're going out to meet a girl, you want to be relevant. Mm -hmm. If you're going to a music venue, you want to be relevant. You know, relevancy is, is the common linkage across all of them. Nobody wants to go to a place that's uncool and irrelevant.
1: Yeah, that's true. That is true. I had a question sort of speaking of motivation. Yeah. In the book, uh, you talk about kind of the devastating effects of procrastination. Yeah, this is something I feel like I fall into a lot.
3: <laughs> why? Why
1: do you think people do that? And sort of what? Why? Why is it so detrimental? I guess.
2: You know, let me give me let me back up and I'll answer your sure. question. You know, guys, we all learn about success, 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 the blocks of success, the steps of success, the words of success, the lessons of success. I've done 159 bar rescues. I've learned more about failure than anyone because no business person deals with this much failure. Mm-hmm. I mean, these people can't buy me lunch. Right. So after 159, after actually about 120, I realized is a common denominator to failure. And no matter who they are, whether they were family, older, younger, what. Ethnic group, economic, income levels, male, it didn't matter. Every one of them suffered the same issue. And the common denominator of failure is excuses. So let me explain what I mean. If you wake up tomorrow morning and blame a shitty podcast on him, you have no reason to change. hmm <laughs> It's that son of a bitch's fault, mm-hmm. or it's the weather's fault, or it's technology's fault, mm-hmm. or it's the distributors, distributor's fault. But if you wake up tomorrow morning and blame yourself, you won't freaking like it, and you'll change. So if you own failure, you'll own success. Now let me take it a step further, and I'll answer your question. So if, in fact, excuses are the number one common denominator of failure, then what is the definition of an excuse? It took me months to figure this out. The definition of an excuse is the rationalization of a mistake. That's what it is. Yeah. Either you did something you shouldn't have, you didn't do something you should have, or you fucked up a decision. (laughs) If you didn't do one of those three things, you would never mention the excuse, would you? Right. So if excuses then become the common denominator and all in excuses is a warm and fuzzy feeling to justify you fucking up (laughs) – then the excuse that you just made, blaming it on procrastination, somehow makes you feel better. And oh, I procrastinate. Somehow that's making you feel better. What you should say is I'm a fucking fool because I'm not doing what would make my life better. So when you look at excuses, the biggest one is fear. Oh, I'm scared of spending the money. Oh, I'm scared of trying it. Oh, I'm scared of doing this. Oh, I'm scared of that. I don't want to change. You know, I'm not going to. You can come up with a reason to fear everything. But if you think about it, what you're scared of at that moment, thousands of other people have fucking done. Right. The fear is bullshit. Unless you're jumping off a cliff with a parachute that somebody else packed, the fear is typically bullshit. So. The next big one is time. Oh, I don't have the time. I don't have the time. You were on social media for three hours this morning, man. <laughs> I mean, that's the ultimate bullshit. Oh, right. the time. So you're going to procrastinate because, uh, you know, I'm scared. I don't want to do it. Or you're going to procrastinate because, you know, uh, I don't have the time. Or you're going to procrastinate the third excuse, circumstance. Oh, yeah, the economy is bad. Well, somebody's making fucking money. So, you know, you'll blame circumstance. So it isn't that you're procrastinating. It's that you're procrastinating for a reason. Is it fear? Is it circumstance? Is it time? The next one is scarcity. Oh, I don't have enough money to do it. Oh, I don't have enough time to do it. Oh, I don't have the technology to do it. Tell that to Stephen Jobs, man. Yeah. <laughs> who did this in his garage with nothing. Yeah. So, you know, that one doesn't work either. So when you look at all of these excuses, every single one of them is bullshit. But we put our arms around them and we hug them and they're warm and fuzzy (laughs) because we're rationalizing our own screw ups. That's why I wrote the book. (laughs) So what I do is I teach you that premise and then I take the six biggest excuses and I destroy them. So when you finish with that book, those excuses don't hold water anymore, man. Mm -hmm. Now what are you going to fucking do? (laughs) Right, right. Now you got act. That's the whole premise of the book. and I'm really excited about it, by the way. You can tell. Yeah, worked, yeah. It took me two years to write this. It was a real uh, 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 labor of love for me. I really wanted to, to share this with people because it's an interesting revelation that I've come up
3: with that the average person wouldn't because they wouldn't experience so much failure. Right. right. There's some, something I wonder about the concept is like, mm. is this balance between, like you say, the average person and somebody who's really invested in success? You know what I mean? Somebody who is persistent on the climb, persistent to make something big and grand of their life and to do something unique. And then I feel like some people aren't. You know what I mean? Like, um, I feel like often... There's
2: there's queen bees and workers.
3: Exactly. Like, I feel like Steve Jobs was Steve Jobs. And the idea that you're going to tell every person around that they could be Steve Jobs if they stopped doing XX and X... Is is that like that a little what I'm too high of a bar to set for someone who maybe is just happy in a simpler life?
2: Yes, but that's not what I'm saying. Okay. What I'm saying is, whatever your expectations are mm-hmm. for yourself, right, right, Don't right. let excuses hold you back. Gotcha. You know, if your expectations in life is to own an, an eighty thousand dollars house, you know, in, in in you know the rural areas of up in Minnesota, then you know there are excuses that are preventing you from doing that, today. right? So, so you know, so you're I only think,
3: dealing with people who are looking for something else. Yeah, success sure. is relative. Yeah,
2: yeah. You know, yeah. If somebody could read this book and say, you know, I'm I'm putting a lot of excuses between me and my wife mm. that are holding my marriage back. Sure. You know, I, I'm letting my children are making excuses all day long that are holding them back. Right. So, you know, excuses affect us all mm-hmm. in different ways. But whatever our goals are, they seem to get in the way too often. Yeah, yeah. And I, I bet you'd agree with that.
3: Oh, for sure. And I mean, there's also an element. That I hear about some of this, and it's something I feel is maybe getting lost. I mean, I don't know if I'm getting older and older and becoming self-righteous, or if it's actually getting lost on kids. I'm not sure. But there does seem to be an element of personal responsibility, especially in the days of social media that have gone away to a point. Yeah, I think I understand People who aren't just owning their own experience, and they're waiting for, you know, a, a fantasy complex, someone coming in to yeah. swoop into your experience and make changes.
2: Be the next YouTube star.
3: Exactly. Overnight. Or something like that. Yeah. yeah.
2: You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about that a few weeks ago, and, and I came up with what I think is, is you know, uh, 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 another way of saying what you said, which I think is incredibly astute, by the way. Thank you. Uh, uh, and that is that the new generation has a different pace of gratification.
0: mm Mm-hmm.
2: Now, you see, I'm a little older than you guys. I understood that it would take me years to get somewhere. So I don't expect to pat in the back in six months. I don't expect to get rich in a year. I, you know, I knew it would take me time. The new generation, because of social media, the ugliest girl in the world can post a picture, and within seconds, you look beautiful! I mean, the comments, the likes, the... It's... it's so people get this instant gratification now. Oh, man, I post it. I feel great. I So the pace... Of gratification for millennials is quicker. Yeah. So if they don't get some gratification in the short term, they tend to bail in the long term. Right. And that's not cool. <laughs> because the quick hit doesn't often happen. Sure. Right. And, and and you gotta realize that you know that there are dues to pay. And there are promotions that have to happen. And there are investors that have to be found. And there are opportunities that need to be discovered. And it doesn't happen sure. in, in the span of a like or a comment on yeah, social yeah. media. And uh, I think it, it's a, uh, um, I think it's holding a lot of young people back because they don't feel that it's happening quick enough for them. I can see that. And, and it's unfortunate in many cases because they have a lot of potential had they stuck with it a little longer. They could have been amazing, right. but, but that gratification or lack of it, if you will, sure. makes them seek the next gratification, so they move
3: on. See, I had read some maybe that maybe this will connect to the old punk rocker in you, which was <laughs> that millennials, you know, every generation's different in what they do, what they expect. I mean, even the idea I have extra compassion for them because if you're 18 years old right now you and your country have been at war since you were a newborn baby. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that frames your thinking. Cause that wasn't my experience, right. but um, I had read an article about the motivation of millennials and the idea that, um, you know, our generation, your generation, there is this value put on, like you said, a worker bee, put your head down, do what you're told be a good company person corporate you know, get citizen. in there <laughs> yeah yeah a corporate citizen yeah be this person and eventually it'll pay off for you and just you know keep your nose clean keep your head down and there's an element to millennials that's like why what am i working for what are we working towards are we doing something positive are we doing something real and that some old school manager types are having a hard time motivating millennials because you need to tell them what they 're doing. You need to offer them a reward because they 're not willing to just like blindly go into battle with people they don 't know or they don 't trust. and I kind of respect that in the punk rock sort of way you
2: know, I think so I think to some degree but, but you know i I would argue it differently
3: i 've never managed a millennial yeah. so you know I <laughs> would argue
2: it differently you know you know to me uh, 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 when I look at that attitude of them there 's a real difference between political activism. And fiduciary responsibility. Mm -hmm. The two are not connected. Right. If you're a CEO of an American corporation and you choose to make a political statement that alienates 50% of your customers, you can get sued. Because you can't hurt the business. There's fiduciary responsibility and then there's moral responsibility. That's correct. Right, right, right. So when you suggest that everybody should do what's right... Or everyone should be making some political activity or somehow helping society in their job. I think that's a crock of fucking self-worth bullshit. Mm. You got to make a living, man. Yeah, <laughs> sure. And you know what? There are no causes and there is no charity without money. Look at where we are. Look at the studio we're in. You have no voice without this technology. Mm-hmm. You have no voice if you didn't pay for the studio today. No money. No charity, no money, no activism, no money, no future. If you put the activism before the money, I think you're fucking blowing it, man. Hmm. That's my view. Okay. Now, the guy with the thick wallet can make a difference in life, can he? The guy with no wallet, nobody listens to. Even if he has a big sign? Guys, don't put the cause before the money. Put the money on the cause, I, I just think that that's, you know, nobody's going to have a future that way. That's like a Ralph Nader, guys, who's 70 years old and lives in a boarding house and has nothing.
3: But, I mean, this is also maybe where you value success, right? Because there are people who would argue in that context that you could take very little, live on very little, give what? very little, and you're still in. I'm not saying what I do. Oh. You know what I mean? Um, I got kids to feed. I understand the concept. You and, want money, man. And, you know, I wound up in... Um, because of my job, I wound up in a in a corporate structure that when I was 16, I would have told myself to go fuck myself if I was in. I wound up there. I own it. It's okay. You know what I mean? But I do um, not like to completely dismiss the idea that... Um, That you have to work inside of the system to change the system. Sometimes I feel like, you know, it's like uh, take a teacher who came in with the greatest intentions and, you know, 27 years after tenure and 30 years into having a thousand kids thrown at their way, the other, you know, it's impossible to hold the same ethic you did when you're 20 because you'll get chipped down. And if you spend 10 to 20 years paying back student loans, going in entry level to a company, Going through company programs and doing this thing, I wonder if you're going to be a person with the same fire and the same voice on the other side.
2: And I see, I I feel that that with every year, I have far more experience, which makes me far more efficient. Mm. And I haven't been chipped down. I feel like I've been bolstered.
1: Yeah. Have you always sort of been this way, though? Like, have you always? Completely. Really? I don't (laughs) let life
2: control me, man. Yeah. yeah. you know I don't let a cause control me. I have my own voice. I make my own money. And, and, you know, I like to use my money for good. Don't get me wrong. I try to. I'm going to Puerto Rico in two weeks to rescue two bars that have been leveled in the island because there's no eye on Puerto Rico now. And it's a real crisis down there. Yeah. So we've realigned our whole production schedule. We're spending a fortune to go down there so that I can rescue two bars and everybody can see the condition of Puerto Rico. So I try to do good. Sure. But but if I don't sell sponsorship, I can't rescue anything in Puerto Rico. Right. Again, the money has to lead the cause for right. me. I just find that that idealism without the resources to affect it is foolish. Yeah, I can see it. Have you? Ha-
1: did you ever have a turning point sort of with your – because you sort of talk about your mother in the book and sort of that being sort of one of your regrets. I mean was that sort of the, the turning point for you or what sort of
2: – It was a big turning point yeah. for me. You know, to separate emotion from reality, you know, but, but what, what he's referring to is, you know, when I was uh, actually was in my 20s and, and I got in an argument with my mother who uh, I don't even remember what your argument was, but we didn't talk for about five years. Uh, whoa and then it was some family event and we spoke and you know it was many years before she died so everything was fixed we were very close when she passed away but you know you think what's five years of my freaking life i mean that's just so stupid over something you don't even think about and that's when emotion takes over logic right Mm -hmm. that's when cause takes over practicality so the principle (laughs) caused me not to talk to her for no purpose but that's idealism (laughs) That's putting principle between between what's best for you.
3: But didn't that same pride <laughs> create Bar Rescue? Like, if he never told you, "Hey, you'll yeah. never make it in this," that same gumption made you. Oh, absolutely. Create the thing that Absolutely, yeah. but it successful. taught me not to let
2: emotions and spite hurt me. Right, 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 right. You right. Know? And, and to because uh, uh, that was really stupid. Right. Sure. You know? And, and I felt, when I figured it out, I really felt like a fucking moron. Yeah, yeah. You mm-hmm. know, and, and we all do things like that. You know, and, and, you know, we all walk away from people we love and things we love and things we believe in over stupid emotional things. So that was really a turning point for me. (laughs) There were also other turning points for me. You know, when I grew up, I grew up very much as, as a fiscal and social liberal. You know, now I'm pretty socially liberal, but I'm very fiscally conservative. You know and in as much as, as I don't always love what what our president says uh, you know I'm very much in favor of the tax cuts I'm very much in favor of small business you know I'm very much in favor of putting more money in the hands of family, less money in the hands of government and, and you know so, so you know I've gotten more conservative sure. fiscally, if you will but i'm I'm not a a a uh, social conservative you know i'm pro gay marriage you know, I'm pro- yeah. pro- I'm, you know so, right. I don't take social, but you know I really worry about us fiscally. In that you know, time, and some uh, of that is, if I can just finish with thought, yeah, some sorry. of that is because the voter puts idealism before financial fiduciary too. So, you know, we as a people, if we don't understand, we, we have to pay for what we want.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We're going to stop getting what we want. Yeah, right. So we really need to think about how do we manage this, no different than your business, mm-hmm. so that there is a tomorrow, so that we can take care of the people we need to tomorrow. So, so I worry about that.
3: Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs>
1: One other thing that separates me and you, John, there's a few things, but a uh, con- couple things. <laughs> you're so good at confrontation, which is one of my big phobias. If I got to, even if I have to send back food at a restaurant, I'm like, oh, I guess I can just eat it. I get so self-conscious. I don't like that. Di- I mean,
2: is that something you've always been good at or how do you sort of foster that? I guess that's something that's sort of an acquired skill. To yeah. Some degree. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you do it and you find out that it works. You know, you tend to do it again. I'll tell you what, when you negotiate with people, when you deal with people, and you'll see me do this in Bar Rescue, if I confront you with an issue in a normal environment, you have time to think about it, digest it, compare it, make a decision, go through a whole process. But if I put you in crisis mode, you have no time to be logical, think about it, digest it, compare it, and make a decision. Mm. So it is to my advantage When I'm negotiating or manipulating you to put you in crisis mode every time, I frickin' knock you off kilter. So it is in crisis mode to me. I'm completely calm. I've got my ducks in a row. I knew I was going to do this. I knew when I was going to do it. I knew how I was going to do it. But you are now freaked out. (laughs) You're not logical. You're emotional. And in your crisis management, I will negotiate you under the table. Our president does that. He comes in hard and finishes soft that's a negotiating style mm-hmm, versus right. coming in soft and finishing hard you see if you come in hard and confront and then end it with a hug things are nice but if you don't confront and you take it take it take it take it and then confront in the end it ends ugly right mm-hmm. confrontation should be earlier not later in a process so in negotiations you come in hard put them in crisis man but i got then, you know, okay. you know, I'll tell you what, if you do this, oh, you know what? And it is he wasn't such a bad guy. He backed up on a few things. I was going to do that in the first place. So, 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 you know, the confrontation, it isn't what it's doing to you. It's what it's doing to the other person. It's not only putting them on the spot, it's putting them in crisis management. And that's a powerful advantage when they're in that mode. Off balance. Jonah, Jonah, you going
1: to start doing it. this? I Completely. should. I mean, a lot of people bail, too. You can see on the show, especially. A oh, lot yeah. of people
3: can't take it. Yeah.
1: And then they come back the next day and they're like, I'm sorry. I'm going to fucking
3: love if, if tomorrow I see Jonah with just this balls out activity, booking guests, and, <laughs> and like... People coming to the food. podcast, someone sits down, hey, fuck you. Just put him <laughs> off. So Jonah, let me, let me I'm fuck, into this, man. So let me
2: fuck with you for a minute. Sure. <laughs> so you say yeah. you procrastinate. Yes. What are you scared of? Um,
3: New Jersey.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe. Are you scared of failing? I've, yeah, maybe not living up to my potential, failing. So by not doing it, your potential is the worst of all. Right. So do you not believe in yourself? I feel like I believe in myself to an extent, but I, I definitely have doubts. I definitely
2: have self-doubt. So how do you get rid of those doubts? How do you do that? When you doubt somebody else, what do you do? You test them, don't you? Right. You push them a little, don't you? Sure. And you learn where their limits are. Right. Wouldn't you love to know where your limits are? Yeah, I would like to know that. So why can't you do it incrementally? Push just a little tomorrow. Next day, a little bit. So you know what? I did that. I was okay. Yeah. I did that. The next day I was okay. You don't have to do it all at once. It can be very incremental. Very small minute steps that you're comfortable with. But if you think that you're not good, I don't I've I've met you a couple of times. Right. I'm going to tell you you are. Thanks, John. So, so suggesting that you shouldn't incrementally test yourself. Right. You're ripping yourself off, buddy. Yeah. Right. I mean, when you, I mean, when you, do you ever
1: lie in bed at the end of the night and you're like, oh man, like, like replay your day, like, I, I could have done this or I could have done this. Or are you sort of like, that's over. I just focus on the future. Like what's your kind of.
2: Yeah. I'm not big on looking back. Yeah. You know, I just don't think it's very counterproductive. We know what the lesson is when we, when we get stung. we know the lesson. We don't have to keep looking back sure. at it. Mm-hmm. But you know, when, when I look at somebody like yourself, who's intelligent, thoughtful, sensitive, you know where you want to go. You're just hesitating to go there, but buddy, the journey is going to be great. So, so test yourself, see what you got. It's going to be a lot of fun. You'll go home tonight and you'll say, "Man, you did it!"
3: You can get excited about this. Yeah, try it. Okay, I will try it. Gonna, I mean, I want to see an all new Jonah tomorrow, Jonah. Incremental. <laughs> no, don't pressure him. Incremental. Oh, okay, don't pressure him. Let, let him take it at his today?
2: pace. But there's a lot of a lot of logic to what I'm saying, isn't there? Yeah, because I do think a lot,
1: I mean, and that's what's interesting about the book. I do think sometimes these changes can seem so overwhelming. And that's,
2: yeah. A little bit, buddy. Yeah. You know, there's a comfort step that you can take. Sure. But 10 of those
3: steps can be a big jump. Right, right. (laughs) Um, to, To switch a little here, I have a few more general bar questions. Quick ones. Sure. Some things I need to ask experts about because I'm freaked out. Okay. Do you eat bar nuts? Okay, first of all, calm down. I'm, I am. Okay, this, first of all, calm the big. fuck down. I'm trying to find my fucking potential yeah, okay. here, John. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you're asking me if I eat bar nuts out
2: of a bowl, yeah, the answer is no fucking way. Yeah, no chance. No chance. Okay. Unless I see a clean bowl come out and I'm the first guy.
3: Clean bowl. package nuts. Yeah, I'm, I'm a package guy. Gotcha. Good. Okay. That makes me feel better. Uh, okay. Now, what about? I like draft beer, but I'm afraid to drink it in a lot of places because I feel like they don't clean out their lines. In between kegs, is this a fair fear? Well, in in almost every case, the beer distributor does that,
2: not the operator, and it's done for free. That makes me feel a little and, and the reason why is, you know, whatever beer brand it is, they want it to be a quality product when you tap it. So they clean the beer lines every 2 weeks. They do pressure checks. They do that as a matter of service to every draft beer provider. Uh, I wouldn't worry about that. Okay. Also, Ooh. if that line is bad, you'll smell a
3: tinniness. It almost smells like tin in like the beer. Yeah, yeah, you'll smell okay. it for sure. Okay. Another one I saw. I saw that you say to tip a bartender at the end of the night. In my experience, if I was to try and do that, I would never get a second drink.
0: You I mean you would okay. get a
3: freebie? No, no. They no, think be, they're being stiffed well, along the oh, way. Yeah, yeah they'd, they'd be like, like this depends guy's stiffed upon me. I mean, that can be cool to me. I'm not going to be If I'm okay.
2: sitting at a low energy bar and my right. drink and my money is sitting in front of me, then I'm not going to tip them each round. I'm staying there. Let me right. have another one. No, no, I'll close my. You're getting there. comfortable. If yeah. I'm in a high energy environment, you bet I'm tipping as I go. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Makes more sense. Of course. So of course. I was like, I'll never because, get a second. And I might not see that bartender again or, you know, who knows what's going to happen. So, yeah, I okay. do it as we go.
3: And I saw another one. If you have to signal a bartender, they're not doing their job. Mm-hmm. what? So what does like a really busy bartender do? To make you know that he's getting to you? Just some eye contact? Well,
2: if you're talking about a bar with three deep, that doesn't apply. Okay. If you're talking about a neighborhood bar where there aren't three deep, he should be looking up and down the bar. And your body language should indicate to him. If he can't see your body language, then it doesn't apply. And he should at
3: the end of the bar be like, I see you. Absolutely. right Right there. But he should be looking.
2: Yeah. You know, but if a bar's three deep, he can't see. Okay. You know, you could be telling him to go fuck himself. He wouldn't know it. Okay. John,
1: last question. Next time you come to the podcast, will you get a drink with us after?
2: Of course. When you haven't done press all day? Of course, guys. Yeah. All right. Sounds You're going to confront me if I don't, right? Exactly. <laughs> we have to. <laughs> we exactly. test your you, you know, guys, I want to tell you this was a lot of fun. Cool. Yeah. Thank I really, you really enjoyed this. This awesome. was a lot of fun, and I'd love to do it again soon. Thanks it was so a, much it was a great well, conversation. Next time awesome. we'll just talk about
0: the troubadour. Yeah, we'll do it again soon. I'm in it. Cool. all right yeah i'm hungry <laughs> uh,
1: and i don't want to rock that was john taffer host of bar rescue and the author of don't bullshit yourself Crusty excuses that are holding you back which is out now and i think um it is yeah a new york times and Wall street journal bestseller and i think that uh this podcast is probably an example of sort of the
0: the tone the tone <laughs>
1: yeah the tone and the sort of uh advice that you're gonna get from this book. So if if that sounds interesting to you, check out the book. Uh thanks again. John was really busy. He was doing press all day. He came to our studio in the evening and gave us, you know, forty five minutes, whatever you heard here. And uh we really appreciate him coming by. We
0: thought we almost thought it wasn't gonna happen. We almost thought it was not <laughs> gonna happen. I mean but uh sitting on the edge of our seats.
1: Yeah and he came through for us. All good. So yeah. And uh yeah. So, um, what else? Uh, if you enjoyed that interview, you can always donate to the podcast. You can go to venmo.com slash off track, or you can go to our site, goingofftrack.com. Uh, there's a PayPal link, um, or you can just leave us a nice comment on iTunes.
0: That'd be nice. That would be nice. And that costs you nothing. Uh, now, if you need, uh, if you're looking for news about the podcast, just check the website, goingofftrack.com. Um, like Jenna said, there's links there for donations if you're up for that and you can get all our old episodes
1: yeah they're all all up there for right now so on itunes check them out on itunes um yeah and if you're curious what's going on you can always drop us a line check out the site and uh yeah hopefully you'll hear more from us (laughs) soon